Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, My guest today is Assistant Professor Moses Billisey. He's an Assistant Professor, Infectious Diseases and Microbiology at University of Pittsburgh. I'm going to talk about um, some of the dynamics of HIV and AIDS. So, Moses, thanks for coming. Thank you. Yeah, so, tell me a little bit about uh, your, your background. Why do you work in the area you work in, first of all? Yeah, so um, my research uh, sort of inspiration um, is really, um, you know, sort of triggered by, you know, work from, you know, Stephen Hawkins and uh, you know, Leonard Maladona. Uh, and really sort of what they sort of argue is that we need to, uh, you know, reevaluate models that we uh, we have for physical phenomena, uh, and it's sort of really sort of that that background that I sort of move into uh, infectious diseases, really trying to develop um, model systems that recapitulate uh, human diseases, uh, and also looking at some of the um, you know foundational um, paradigm that we have that govern uh, those models that we, we develop to explain and predict uh, the dynamics of uh, infectious diseases. When you say recapitulate human diseases, meaning cause them to happen in a similar way in a mouse, but without having to you know, be unethical and infect someone and watch the disease progress in them. Correct. Yes. So, yes. So, um, you know, there are differences in between, you know, a rodent and a human being. Uh, for, for some viruses, um, they don't infect human, uh, they don't infect rodents uh, like HIV. Uh, and so you, you have to sort of recapitulate uh, that human organ system in, uh, in a rodent model, and that will allow you to uh, study the disease. Um, and, and so that's sort of one aspect of my work. And then the other aspect is sort of looking at some of these um, uh, foundational paradigms. And so that's more like a theoretical aspect of my work and how, because a laboratory is really doesn't uh, tells you everything that sort of goes on in society. It's just a snapshot uh, and you're making a lot of assumptions. And what I try to understand in terms of sort of broader infectious disease research is to what are some of those things we're missing? Uh, so that's sort of the second part of my work. Yeah. So what are what are the you know to you what are the most important questions that you're trying to answer with your research right now? So um, obviously COVID is uh, on everyone's mind, um, and including myself. And so one of the things that sort of you, sort of stands out with this uh, COVID pandemic uh, that you and that's pretty much I think everyone noticed that is a lot of the early predictions uh, in terms of where uh, the, the regions that, was, that were most uh, um, at risk, um, namely uh, in uh, sub-Saharan Africa in the equatorial belt, where you have really poor health system, uh, and also in Southeast Asia, um, you know, where, for example, Thailand, you have high level uh, of tourists from China. Um, and so that didn't really pan out. So, and, and it's sort of going back to, um, you know, um, Stephen Hawking's uh, modern dependent realism sort of 
argument, uh, sort of thinking that I sort of um, gained from that is that we need to look at these fundamental, uh, these, these foundational um, paradigms uh, that are sort of governing that those hypotheses that were sort of developed. Uh, and so that, that's been another aspect of my work, sort of looking at those dynamics and trying to understand what we're missing. So, okay. So um, do you want to focus on COVID or do you have a much longer term look into HIV? And I'm sure you've learned a lot of lessons there. So like, you know, if we yeah. take those same questions, right. we find right. HIV, which has been rampaging for, you know, no, I, 30, I, I, 30, 40 years. What, what's been learned there, especially by you, that's like really unusual or, you know, or different? So in, in terms of HIV, so where, so where my work has really sort of focused is on looking at uh, macrophages uh, and iron. Um, and in, in terms of, because um, macrophages really, they're sort of these multifunctional cells um, that play a role in maintaining tissue integrity, that um, play a role in initiating immune response. And so I've looked at, um, so I developed this humanized uh, mouse model that has uh, human thymus and spleen and also immune cells. And the idea is that this model recapitulates the human immune system. And we have used this model to sort of look at what are some of the, the mechanism that allows this virus to persist versus being controlled. And we can use uh, different uh, mutant virus um, called a NEF virus, uh, NEF mutant virus, um, to really sort of look at those dynamics. And, and the really exciting outcome we, um, we had in our lab is showing that uh, HIV, NEF mutant HIV can be controlled uh, in this model with the uh, robust human immune system versus, um, versus wild type virus. Well, again, what are you trying to figure out in, in relation so, to so, HIV? So, okay, so, so what, what we're trying to figure out is what are the signaling uh, network that sort of drive that control? And also, what are some of the molecular determinants of the virus that sort of drive that? And right now, we're sort of looking at macrophages, how the virus perturbs macrophages, and particularly uh, has to do with sort of the metal status, uh, iron status in these macrophages, how the virus sort of perturbs that. Uh, that allows the virus to either persist or, um, uh, or the immune system to suppress the virus. And, and we've been able it to... It seems like uh, a lot of viruses somehow know to attack, uh, you know, our immune cells. I mean, maybe since viruses appear to be passive in the virion phase, that it's, uh, those are the cells that they tend to run into first because they're like landmines, I guess, you know, floating around in, in the, you know, experience has taught them that uh, the immune system will attack them and engulf them and, and all that. Have you, um, have you been able to, I don't know, analyze or has anyone been able to analyze macrophages mid phagocytosis? and see uh, what's happening to, let's say, HIV? Um, so there have been some group, we haven't done this uh, specifically. Uh, there, there's some groups sort of looking at uh, sort of the cellular dynamics of the virus and, and there's particular regards to macrophages. Uh, that is something we're interested in doing sort of in the future. Uh, but you raise a good point, but, uh, but a lot of that in terms of targeting, uh, you know, you have to sort of think about that from the perspective of, uh, you know, that, that cell having that entry receptor. So that, that plays a huge role where in macrophages, they do have those entry receptors. For other viruses, um, they, they don't. Um, and, and so the dynamics is a, is a whole lot different. So you're saying the, uh, the iron status of the macrophages, I mean, you know, the only iron use I've ever heard of, and I'm sure most people in the body is, I guess, um, hemoglobin, you know, red blood cells, right. take it right. up and use it. Right. How do other cells use iron? I mean, in particular, macrophages, what, what role does it have in them? 
So, so the macrophages, um, you know, they're, they're recycled iron. Uh, so most of the iron in your body um, is sort of recycled iron. Uh, you, you excrete very little iron and you intake very little iron. Uh, so, so the macrophage sort of, they're, you know, they're sort of the distributor. Uh, they sort of decide who gets what iron, what amount of iron and who doesn't get iron. Um, and and they, they use that in sort of host defense, particularly in terms of bacteria. But, but you're right, in terms of making, you know, red blood cells, uh, that iron is critical for transporting oxygen uh, to different tissues in the body. Uh, so you can sort of see how on that aspect, how it's critical, but also in terms of restricting um, bacteria on growth. Uh, bacteria in a lot of, most organisms require iron to grow. Uh, in, in terms of viruses, um, we, we started to explore how viruses and iron uh, sort of interact, uh, at least vis-a-vis the macrophages. Uh, and, you know, my work in sort of looking at COVID sort of moved into that realm, sort of looking at a more bigger picture and sort of understanding how iron, um, you know, this ferromagnetic metal in human, uh, how does it modulate uh, disease and how does uh, the environment interact with that iron uh, to to affect human health? Well, what, why do bacteria preferentially need or use iron to, you know, what, to spread? I mean, to live, period? Yeah, so, so you know, for the replication, you know, DNA, uh, DNA synthesis, uh, you know, a lot of enzymes um, that bacteria use require iron as cofactors. So it becomes really critical for the, you know, bacteria even make uh, molecules that can sequester uh, host iron for, for their own use. So it becomes really critical to have access to those iron and the host, in particular the macrophages, whose uh, job is to sort of secure those iron and redistribute them to the host uh, cells. Um, you know, so there's sort of a competition between the, the macrophage and the, um, the bacteria, you know, a lot. Uh, but in terms of viruses, um, you know, there's very little work research done on that right now. Um, um, and we're, we're actually one of the few groups that sort of look into that. We started, uh, during my postdoc days, I started looking at, uh, in terms of hepatitis, um, viruses, and um, macrophage and iron, and now moving to HIV, uh, and, uh, and obviously moving into COVID, uh, sort of looking at what role iron could be playing. Uh, in these diseases. Um, so, I mean, do you look at, let's say, uh, like, can you in- induce a low iron state or a high iron state in mice or model anemia in people? I mean, yeah, you know, so, what's, what's a way to, to model this really easily? Iron so, disorders? Yeah. So, I mean, for a lot of, um, you know, in terms of looking at iron, we sort of looked at a natural interaction. So we infect these animals. So we, we create these animals with a human organ system and then we infect them with a virus. Um, um, you know, right now we're, we're doing a lot of work with um, HIV. We've done a lot of work with HIV. Uh, and then we see the changes in the iron status. Uh, and what we've sort of um, observed is that um, this changes in the iron status also change the inflammatory status of these macrophages. And we see more tissue fibrosis. So, uh, and this becomes really critical because tissue fibrosis uh, sort of damages the lymphoid tissue that's really critical for generating those immune cells that can control a, a viral replication. So uh, and, and, how do you, um, how do you yeah. I mean, I've heard of organoids being made and tested in vitro, but how do you um, change a mouse's physiology to have human organs in it somehow? I mean, what are you doing? So, 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 we're, um, so, so we're doing transplantation. So we transplant these animals with human um, hematopoietic stem cells. We also put in um, 
tissue, uh, sort of organ oil-like tissue in the animal. Um, we put it on in a specific site that sort of really allows uh, the tissue to grow, um, predominantly in the kidney capsule. Um, and then uh, we sort of, you know, investigate what or not the, these these immune system that uh, develop in these animals sort of recapitulate to what we see in humans. Uh, so we look at different cells, um, cell types, and we look at the responses. Uh, we can also couple these um, with uh, other organ systems, sort of like the liver, and you know, recently we're moving into the skin and the lung. Uh, so we can transplant those tissues in there and sort of look, uh, that will allow us to look at uh, the interaction between that human host tissues uh, and, that, um, and that pathogen, that virus in vivo. And, and the animal is immunodeficient. So that's, that, that sort of allows us to sort of implant those tissues. So, so that's a critical aspect. So we're using uh, immunodeficient animals. Yeah, but again, my liver is bigger than a whole mouse. <laughs> right. So what do you, how do you do a miniature liver? Do you take, so, so yeah, so, so, you know, so there, yeah, so there is an ingrained, um, you know, sort of biological limits, right? So if if you put a human liver cell uh, in a mouse, it, it tends to grow to that limit, that biological limit of that host. You know, it doesn't grow any bigger than that. You know, so if we put we put thymus and spleen in there, uh, it doesn't grow beyond the capacity of that host to sort of maintain that tissue. Uh, and sustain life. So, so that's kind of fascinating. So what are some of the molecular mechanisms that, you know, determines that certain mechanical uh, stressors, um, you know, plays a critical role in determining tissue size? Uh, we haven't really investigated that, but, but you're absolutely right. There's some interesting biology that sort of goes on in terms of maintaining uh, that an appropriate tissue size uh, to allow us to study uh, those dynamics. The, the whole oh, so if you put in, a, in an immunocompromised mouse, if you put some liver cells in there, it'll grow like a tiny human-esque liver inside the mouse? Right, right. It'll grow like, um, it'll, it'll grow like a tiny human-like liver. Um, and we put it, we put it, to, we, we transplant it, uh, so the cells go directly in the liver. Uh, and it sort of reconstitutes the liver. We can get, um, uh, depending on the cell type we use, you can get anywhere from 20% to up to 90%, depending on the split cell type. Wait but, a minute. So this is like, this this. How good are they, the livers that are grown, for instance, in a mouse? Uh, I mean, like, are they differentiated? They have blood supply? I mean, yes. this could be a, a billion times better than the, the organoids that are being made just by a little ball of cells. True. I mean, that's, so that's the exciting part about this work in that it's um, you're recapitulating the organ system in vivo, um, where you have, you know, system-to-system interaction. Uh, and in our case, we're looking at the immune system and the liver cells. Uh, we extended that to the skin and the immune system, uh, and now we're moving the lung. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's sort of really exciting because it's sort of you know moved beyond you know that you know, organoid tissue culture based system that you really don't have that uh, sort of systemic interaction. Um, and and there's certainly you know a lot of biology that is lost by not looking in you. Yeah, that's amazing. Has that been? I would think this is being studied actively by a lot of people. I mean. If you contrast, um, you know, I don't know, one of these liver organoids or whatever other organ organoids to one developed in a mouse, I mean, do they act similarly, differently? Like, how good of uh, an approximation for a person is? So yeah, there has been some studies, not you know, not from my lab, but actually looked at the prediction of um, drug toxicity. Um, and, and drugs that fail in clinical trial, um, you know, based on a traditional mouse model. 
looked and what they found was that uh, these humanized liver mouse um, predict the toxicity that you know occur in, in, in a clinical trial. Uh, and whereas the traditional mouse model didn't predict that toxicity. Uh, so uh, with the, the organoid system, you know, the biggest problem is sort of maintaining that tissue, um, that cell, that organoid in, in that tissue culture system. It's, it's really difficult. Uh, there seems to be, particularly for the liver, there seems to be that in vivo uh, system, there are certain uh, nutrients, uh, micronutrients, uh, fact is that it's really critical uh, that you just, I mean, it's just almost impossible to sort of, you know, replicate that, um, to recapitulate that um, in um, in the tissue culture system. When a mouse has, um, you know, I don't know, liver cells in it, do you take out the mouse's liver or, or that exists, you know, at the yeah. same time that the mouse's liver exists? Yeah, so we have to do like a, a gradual depletion of the mouse liver because uh, liver is a critical organ. Uh, so we have to do a gradual depletion of the mouse liver cells and reconstitute that with the human uh, liver cells. Um, so, so that's sort of really critical, um, sort of managing that. And we, we sort of uh, really optimize that. So where you knock out the, the, the mouse liver cells uh, and then the human cell sort of reconstitute that. Um, yeah, that's, that's sort of the, the, the overall wow. um, scheme of that reconstitution. And how many different, uh, so I guess it's just one organ? Or have you had, you know, poor mice with two, three organs that are, uh, you know, yeah, that's sort of, you know, that, that, that's sort of, you know, the work we do in my lab. Um, we do, we built multi-organ um, system, humanized mouse model. And so we've built liver and immune system uh, from autologous tissues. Um, we've moved into uh, the skin, the immune system. And that sort of really allow us to study, for example, skin pathogen and the inflammatory response to that, especially on MRSA. Uh, so we have a project on that. Um, and, um, and we can also, we're also looking at uh, intradermal vaccinations in that. Uh, so some of the work with COVID, we're looking at intradermal vaccinations uh, because, you know, it overcomes a lot of, sort of the restrictions associated with um, intramuscular vaccination where you have, you need cold chain, uh, you know, and dosing issues. So uh, by, by using these skin patch vaccines uh, and taking advantage of the high concentration of antigen presenting cells in the skin, we can sort of overcome that. And this model we, we've developed really sort of allow us to sort of test that. Yeah, I would think all the organized community would be all over this. I mean, this could be a new standard, um, you know, for clinical trials, because if you have a, your mouse model and everything, and then alongside of that, you have a, you know, the mouse with the humanized organ and stuff. I mean, it seems that that would probably give you a lot better intelligence about what will fail and what won't going forward. So why not make that a standard? I mean, like, you know, the, right. I, I mean, think the FDA would be all over this. Right. So, yeah. So there's been, you know, there's been considerable uh, interest from the FDA uh, in terms of utilizing these models. Uh, I mean, there are some limitations of it because, um, you know, one of the, the sources of tissue that we use um, and it, it involves um, fetal tissue, um, which is um, medical waste, from elective abortion. So that sort of, um, you know, there's been some concerns about that. And so that, that sort of, sort of damp the enthusiasm, at, at least um, in terms of sort of moving forward with that work. Uh, so we don't, you know, it, so there, there's been sort of like down, I, I would say that's sort of the, the down on that research because there's some limitation on that. Uh, but we were looking at other sources, um, sort of trying to look at, um, you know, IPSC sort of generate, uh, 
the organ oil and then transplant it in the in the animal uh, and also using uh, you know tissue from adults uh, or surgical waste. So so we're looking at different alternatives. Um, so so yeah, there's some hurdle in terms of sourcing tissue sourcing that um, that that sort of um, have dampened the enthusiasm um, for this work. But but as considered. What if I, I understand why, because you could say, you know, it would encourage abortions to get the raw material needed for this. But um, what happens if you take adult stem cells and you put them in a mouse and you do the same procedure or, you know, induce pluripotent stem cells? Can you cue it to uh, to grow at least a small version of a given organ? Right, right. And, and, and that's sort of where, you know, that's where the field is moving and there's there's more interest in funding those line of work. And, but one of the fundamental limitations is that tissue stem cells from adults and older individuals uh, just aren't as good as those from uh, fetal derived donor. Uh, so, so we still need to sort of optimize those, you know, IPSC derived cells or, you know, adult stem cells. So there, there needs to be um, significant optimization of those protocols. Uh, and in terms of getting them to comparable levels to what we um, we achieve with the fetal-derived tissues. Huh. Yeah, I mean, well, at least to me, is, I think you can hear this is a real interesting part. What are, um, what are some of the limitations? Can you do a heart inside a mouse, or is that not possible? Or, you know, like what organs are possible? And how yeah. far do you think this can be pushed? So in, in terms of the list of the organs, so we've we've successfully engrafted, you know, hematopoietic stem cells, um, the lymphoid tissue, the spleen, and the thymus. Um, we've recently coupled that with the skin, uh, and we're sort of moving to couple that with the lung. Uh, and we previously, uh, you know, co-transplanted the hematopoietic stem cells and liver progenitor cells. Uh, so, so we've, we've. I mean, to me, that uh, at least from my research interest, those are some of the major organ systems that that we're interested in. Um, um, but there's, yeah, obviously, a lot of it involves surgery, and uh, that sort of creates um, a hurdle in terms of the organ systems that you want to transplant in. And we're sort of looking uh, right now. We sort of move into larger rodent species, and so the rat, uh, which really sort of allow us to do a lot. Um, more surgical manipulation as opposed to mouse models. Yeah, I mean, if this was um, if this model worked in a pig, I mean, you could probably grow full size organs, maybe for re transplantation back into people. You know, or if you got like a capybara, like a big rodent, right? Or a guinea pig. I mean, even a guinea pig, well, it probably wouldn't get you there. But let's say a thyroid. You know, what's the the smallest animal that you could do this in that would could even grow like even half a human thyroid? You know. Right. Yeah. So th- there, there is, uh, there is some work, and I believe the state of California sponsored some work toward growing uh, human organ system in pigs for the specific purpose that you just stated to, for transplantation. Uh, so yeah. So there is considerable work on that, uh, in, in sort of humanizing a pig for the purpose of transplantation. So yeah, I, um, I haven't really followed them, you know, in the last few months, but um, they they seem to be making uh, some headways uh, in that effort. What happens when you? Um when you grow again a liver or a lung or whatever it is in the mouse, it's a lot smaller. You said it's like a fish that grows to the size of a tank, I guess. But what about its morphology? Are you growing literally a tiny lung? It looks just like a regular lung, or does it have a different morphology or liver, so, or et cetera? 
So, so the long work, uh, a colleague of mine, um, Richard Garcia at UNC, he sort of did that. And he, he really showed that uh, you can sort of recapitulate a lot of the long uh, architecture and long structure. Uh, we sort of move in that uh, primarily because of COVID. With the skin that we worked on, we, we show the same microanatomy. We show um, hair follicles. Um, we show uh, multi-layer uh, epidermis. Um, and so in the liver, we can see the similar structure in the liver. Uh, with the lymphoid tissue, we can see similar structure in the lymphoid tissue, the follicles. Uh, so um, really, we were able to recapitulate a lot of microanatomy and, um, and look at the function of those cells in those, those tissues. We can recapitulate the function of those cells. So to me, that is really exciting uh, because now we can sort of look at what, you know, how does the human immune system react to um, HIV? Um, and how does that immune system control the virus? So by using viruses that have mutants in these virulent factors, um, we can see how those virulent factors sort of perturb the immune system to uh, mediate chronic infection. So, uh, and that sort of opened a whole new window uh, for, you know, sort of evaluating vaccines because now you have a human immune system that it can control a live attenuated virus. Uh, and to me, that's sort of the gold standard for evaluating a, a vaccine. Um, again, when you look at an organ that is much smaller, made in the mouse, you're recapping it, but what, what's missing in your opinion? Like, Again, what you know? Are there certain? What does that tell you? If you grow a liver in a mouse, a human liver, I mean, it's a lot smaller, but it's not like an exact micro replica of the liver. Like, what's different about it? What's missing? Uh, so, with it, it depends on the tissue you're sort of looking at. Um, in in liver, because um, we we're putting prim- predominantly we we're putting uh, sort of liver progenitor cells. Uh, we can recapitulate a lot of the cell types. Um, if we put in like for fetal derived tissue, we can we get some of the, the hepatocytes differentiated or adult like state. Uh, we can get some stellar cells in there, but I, the endothelial cells they seem to be a lot lower uh, in terms of number of cells, um, and so the, so that's that's certain areas. Uh, with the lymphoid tissue, um, they're in the kidney capsule, so it's not precisely the the environment, even though you have, you know, high level of blood flow in that, in that, in the kidney capsule, we, you can use to screen out uh, pathogens, but still the, the environment is a little different. Uh, same with the thymus. So, so there are some differences in terms of where they're located, but, you know, in terms of what I'm interested in is sort of functional, those that function as that. And, and for the most part, I, at least this model we've created, um, this BLTS model, um, we are able to control a live attenuated virus. And, and, and that's the hallmark of a robust immune system to be able to control a live attenuated virus. Do you think in the future, even if, um, I don't know, let's say someone's kidneys are shot, do you think in the future, even if you were able to implant um, three or four mini kidneys grown in a mouse, would that still work? Would that be enough function for the person to at least function at a low level and get along? Yeah, so, you know, so that's sort of really interesting. Um, you know, I've never, you know, so my work is really sort of like animal modeling. I, I've never really sort of, you know, you know, venture into the realm of sort of human transplantation biology. Um, but there, there are a lot of groups that are sort of looking at uh, cellular transplantation uh, as a means to sort of, uh, you know, assist and prolong the life of people on organ transplantation lists. Um, and so, so a lot of times it's sort of a race against the clock and, 
you know, there's there's been tremendous progress in that area, but it, there's still a lot of work needs to be done uh, in terms of making sure those cells can graph and those cells can actually grow. In in the mouse model that we work in, you know, there might be some advantages uh, because number one, the small size, so we we don't need to put a lot of cells in, and um, you know, these, these animals are immunodeficient, so we we you know we literally knocked out their B T cells and their N K cells, so there's there's a little bit less restriction in terms of accepting those dental grafts. So th- that might be a major hurdle within humans, wherein you have a human you know, immune system that can uh, reject that uh, xenograft, that, that, that um, donor tissue. The mice are immunocompromised, but are they germ-free? No, they're do not. they have a microbiome? So, so they do. They do. We do a specific, um, we run a, a specific pathogen-free program. Uh, so just sort of a list of pathogens that we're mainly concerned about because they cause disease. Um, but they're not germ-free. Uh, they can't be made, made germ-free. So we looked at some of the interaction between uh, the microbiome and the immune system. So, um, so yeah, so that's, that's another exciting area that um, you know, can certainly uh, sort of looking at how uh, the human microbiome interacts with the human immune system, which uh, most likely is different from, um, you know, with the interaction between uh, the mouse microbiome and, and the mouse immune system. Well, if you grew a certain organ in a mouse and one was germ-free, one was not, I mean, you could see if that affects the growth of that, you know, mini organ too. I, I agree. So, yeah. I mean, not, not, not just the growth of that organ, but the function of it. Uh, the, the, you know, the microbiome played a critical role in terms of modulating uh, immune cell development and, and function. So certainly you can, um, you're, you're likely to see their differences uh, in, in terms of, um, you know, the architecture and the growth and the function of those cells uh, in those different, uh, under those different conditions. Well, very interesting. So Moses, what are you uh, working hard on that you think in the next one to three years, you're going to make some headway in understanding? Oh, so, um, you know, so I'm, I'm really sort of, um, like I said, discuss interested in terms of understanding um, how HIV sort of perturbs the immune system. And, And really the idea is that, information from that, uh, from those experiments will really sort of give us an idea to design the vaccines. And so we've, you know, we've, you know, had this really exciting result where we, we show we can control a live attenuated HIV in our animal model. Um, and we're, we're going to do some machine learning analysis and look at network interactions of the immune cells and try to understand how do we sort of design vaccine based around those immune responses that control those live attenuated virus. Um, obviously, you can't use live attenuated HIV in people because uh, there's inherent um, sort of risk with that, um, you know, issues like, you know, reversion of that virus. Um, but you can use that information that you get uh, in terms of the immune system controlling that virus to design a vaccine that can trigger a similar immune responses. Um, and really, sort of, that's where uh, in the next three years, um, you know, that's where my research is really sort of oriented towards uh, determining. Well, very good. Well, Moses, I mean, it's been a great call. I know I kind of took it in one direction, but um, no, that's working right. on so huh? No, that, 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 that's uh, I didn't know which direction you wanted to take it. Uh, um, you know, I was prepared for for whatever um, discussion you wanted to have, and but uh, I definitely do appreciate. Um, you know, that, and this is important work that I do. Uh, it, it's a major part of my research program um, and, and having this discussion and sort of um, putting it out there so that people understand. And, and you make a, a lot of really good points that 
these model systems could have tremendous impact uh, in terms of uh, drug testing and vaccine evaluation. And, and that's really where, um, you know, that's the direction I'm, I, I hope to move into. Well, in your spare time, I need you to solve HIV, make it the new standard to use these human little organs and mice, and then solve the transplant problem as well. So can you do all that? <laughs> well, we'll try. <laughs> we'll try. Definitely, we'll try. Right on. Well, Moses, thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it, uh, your invitation, too. Thank you. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.